I, I love the idea of thinking deeply about the gospel. Uh, I don't need to uh, point up the obvious problem in the contemporary evangelical world with a superficial message, a, a shallow gospel, um, a, a felt needs approach to the gospel. And we're all very much aware of that. Um, recently, I did a a series on Christian deconstruction, uh, talking about the people who are defecting from Christianity. Um, some of them are pastors, prominent pastors who wrote books and uh, had a high profile. Some of them are Christian musicians, quote-unquote, whatever that is. Um, many of them are just plain, ordinary Christians. But there just seems to be a massive surge of Christian deconstruction. And it's, uh, it's even got its own hashtag, hashtag exvangelical. Um, it's a popular thing now to do that. It's a, new, it's a new group of the oppressed who have been liberated from the oppression of evangelicalism. Um, and it's very, very far-reaching. And the expectation, at least that I have, and I think you you would validate that, is that we're going to see more of it in the future. And the reason there are going to be more people defect is because there are more people who named the name of Christ but weren't saved. And that's First John 2, 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us that it might be made manifest. They were never of us. So we're beginning to see the fallout of that. Growing up, you know, as a pastor's kid, one of the saddest things that would ever happen in our little world, uh, just kind of watching my father's ministry, was when somebody that we thought was a believer rejected the faith. That was a, that was a sad situation. Maybe it was a husband who ran off with some woman and rejected the faith and left his wife and family. Occasionally it was a pastor. Sometimes it was a youth pastor. Um, in, in my case, uh, very, very close friends uh, that, that I was... Um, involved in athletics with and in some kind of ministry, and, and uh, they defected. And it was all treated with uh, profound sadness. In fact, it was, uh, it was a little bit like homosexuality in those days. If you, if you were into that, you didn't go into a parade. You hid. There, there was a, a sensible amount of shame for the, the kind of deviations uh, that homosexuals parade these days. Well, the same thing was somewhat true with people who defected from the faith. They kind of wanted to slip away silently. But now they want to display themselves, uh, put themselves on display as another oppressed mass of people who've been liberated from the horrors of, uh, of Christianity. And um, I think it's, um, it's easy to get out if it was easy to get in. And uh, it's time for the evangelical church to realize that Jesus said it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. I wrote a book by that title. It's hard to believe. In fact, it's actually impossible to believe on your own. And there's so much scripture that deals with the issue of the struggle of salvation the disciples said to Jesus one day, are only a few being saved? Because they were trying to figure out why it was that the Messiah had arrived after centuries of uh, prophetic anticipation. And he had come and he had demonstrated who he was by his teaching and by his miracles. And there were very few people who believed. And the structure, the religious structure of, of Israel hated him and early on, they were planning to kill him. It just didn't fit the messianic picture that was pretty much what they had held on to for centuries. What, what is, what's going wrong here? Why, why is this so difficult? And of course, the reason was that Jesus said things like, you have to hate your father, your mother, and your own life to be my disciple. You have to count the cost. Uh, we don't have much of that these days. I, I kind of grew up in an era when it was uh, walk an aisle and pray a prayer and you're in. 
Now it doesn't even require that, I think. If you feel sentimental about Jesus, the assumption is uh, you're okay. I want to contrast that with what the Bible says. And in regard to that, with one individual in particular, and that's Martin Luther. If you've uh, read anything about Martin Luther, you probably were aware of the fact that he was a very depressed guy, uh, full of anxiety, full of guilt, constant sadness. And it was a thunderstorm and a lightning bolt near him that terrified him into becoming a monk. He, he became a monk not because he had discovered God or Christ or the truth, but, but because he was so afraid. Afraid of God, who wielded the thunderbolts, obviously. So before he was a clear-headed theologian, he was a very confused and frightened monk. Before he was a powerful force, he was a tormented failure. Before he had spiritual peace, he was in spiritual pain all the time. With the uh, awareness, I guess you could say, that he could lose his life at any moment, terrors set into his heart. So he joined the monastery, the Augustinian monastery, and he found that one thing was true about the monastery, it was really hard to get saved. It was so hard that for most people, maybe predominantly most people, maybe the vast majority of most people, it was really too hard, and you weren't going to be able to do it, and that's why there was purgatory. You could at least get that far with your failing efforts at self-righteousness. Purgatory was for those who weren't bad enough to go to hell but weren't good enough to go to heaven. And in order to get in and out of purgatory, you need help. And the idea was that there's one person particularly who can help you, and that's Mary. Um, God can be pretty tough, and Jesus can be pretty tough, but Mary, she's uh, much more compassionate. And so the monks appealed to Mary for the mercy of salvation. Luther actually was terrified of Christ as judge. And he was working hard to earn enough merit to become worthy of grace. That's a weird sentence, isn't it? to earn enough merit to be worthy of grace. So he gave himself to the most severe disciplines imaginable. He um, renounced self-will, ate a meager diet, wore uncomfortable clothes, maintained uh, bizarre and uh, painful vigils, went to begging, which is the ultimate act of social humiliation. He fasted so often, his friends thought he was going to die from malnutrition. He tried, through all of these and other means, to draw down blessing from the treasury of merit. He even tried visiting relics confessing his sins constantly, sometimes up to six hours. And uh, he walked 800 miles to Rome and ascended the Scala Sancta, the Holy Steps. And at the end of it all, he had absolutely no peace. The source of all his angst and the source of all his affliction was the issue that eludes all false religions. And it was this, how can you be right with God? That is the question that religion is designed to answer. How can you be right with God? How can you be forgiven of whatever offenses you have committed against God? How can you escape punishment and hell? And how can you gain heaven? And his journey to find the answer to that question 
began as a Roman Catholic monk. He actually believed that his salvation depended on his suffering, so he inflicted extreme torment on his soul and on his body. Here's a quote from Luther. I tortured myself with praying, fasting, keeping vigils, and freezing. The cold was enough to kill me. I inflicted such pain as I would never inflict again. End quote. Well, freezing was a new one to me. Martin Luther's self-imposed torture, along with his academic pursuits, sacraments, pilgrimages, pilgrimages, and other strange deprivations, gave him, however, no peace. They only increased the torment. And what happened was he kept getting angrier with God because he was never getting any relief. The reality was clear to him that he was by nature and by behavior a sinner, And God was by nature and behavior holy, and the gulf was infinite, and he could not get across that gulf. Luther became convinced that no sinner, no sinner could please God. He had done everything he knew to do at extreme levels and knew he did not know God. And so he began to feel that God was cruel And he came to hating God. Here's another quote from Luther. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteous wrath. Thus he said, I raged against God with a fierce and troubled conscience. One wonders where such raging is in the shallows of contemporary Christianity among sinners. Martin Luther would have found company with at least one person in the Scripture. If you have a Bible, for just a minute, uh, turn to the book of Job. And in the ninth chapter, where you... You get a very Lutheran lament from Job. In chapter 9 of Job, in verse 2, Job asks the question, how can a man be in the right before God? That is the question. How can a man be right with God? And then he soliloquies about this. If one wished to dispute with him, he couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. Job is saying essentially what Luther came to. I can't get to God. I can't communicate. I'm not getting answers. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how when he overturns them in his anger. And he goes on to talk about God and how he makes the pillars tremble and he commands the sun to shine and sets a seal on the stars and He goes through all of those amazing things that God does. Sort of coming down to verse 19, it's a matter of power. Behold, he is the strong one. You know, if you're going to wrestle with him, you're going to lose. And it's a matter of justice. Who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless in my own mind, he will declare me guilty. This is exactly where Luther was. Job says, I've tried to wrestle with God over the calamity in my life, and I don't find an answer. Verse 32 of chapter 9, He is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. I can't go to court with God. I'll lose. And it was that mentality that basically created the struggle in the life of Luther. 
But what you see in that is a situation where someone has a fully robust understanding of the sinfulness of sin, which is the very foundation of all gospel preaching. Uh, The gospel is not designed to deliver people from lack of purpose or uh, bad marriage or unfulfilled ambition. The gospel is designed to deliver people from the fury and wrath of a holy God. But that is not how it is presented in our modern world. Job's question was like Luther's. How can I be right with God? This question is posed a number of ways in Scripture. For example, Psalm 130, verse 3. Since you, Lord, mark iniquities, who can stand? I mean, this is the end of the rope. Since you're you're making an issue out of sin, how do I survive? Or Psalm 143, 2. For in your sight... No man lives in righteousness, or no man living is righteous. No one. This is exactly what the Scripture says. In Isaiah 64, another way this is framed, uh, I think is helpful. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. You have hidden your face from us and delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Again, the prophet is saying, what do we do about this impossible situation? In Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we read, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? How do I expect to come into his presence? What do I bring? What do I offer? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? Shall I come to him with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's the the same torturous angst. Because they understood the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God, they also understood then that it was impossible for them to find a path by their own means to be made right with God. How can I be righteous? How can I escape guilt? How can I escape eternal punishment? That is the question. The question. Unfortunately, all religion has the wrong answer. And the wrong answer, you can see it in the answer that Judaism offered, Romans chapter 10. Paul points this out. Here is his issue with Israel, Romans 10. He has a heart's desire and prayer to God for them regarding salvation. Here's their problem. Verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness. What, What they don't understand is the righteousness of God, the extent of it. They don't know about God's righteousness. And seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. With the Jews, it was this. They thought God was less righteous than he was, and they were more righteous than they were. So you must know about the sinfulness of sin and the absolute righteousness of God to be on the ground at which the gospel can take effect. Only the gospel has the right answer. What is the right answer? Verse 4 of Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
The law has to lead you to Christ. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the search. Christ is where the law is pointing you. There are only two possible ways of acceptance with God, the narrow and the broad. Both are marked heaven, but one goes straight to hell. The narrow is the way of the gospel, grace, and faith leading to life. The broad is the way of all religion leading to death. The gospel is the truth, and all other means of salvation are doctrines of demons. There's no salvation apart from belief in the true gospel. Anybody who thinks there is, Paul says to the Galatians, is bewitched. Now, there are people today who would deny that, and I thought it might be interesting for us to just kind of know what's out there in, in our theological culture. Something that has become popular is called natural theology. Natural theology says that man has natural reasoning powers that can bring himself to God without the Bible or the gospel. Did you get that? Without the Bible or the gospel. I'll give you an illustration. The Pope's interpretation of the Second Vatican Council, quote, those who live in accordance with the Beatitudes and who hear lovingly and rather, and who bear lovingly the sufferings of life will enter the kingdom of God. Did you get that? That's the Pope. Those who live in accordance with the Beatitudes and who bear lovingly the sufferings of life will enter God's kingdom. No Bible, no gospel. There is also another version of this called the wider mercy view that God saves people in many other religions. This tends to find its way into liberal Protestantism. Clark Pinnock, once a very effective apologist, toward the end of his life said this, quote, God has more going on by way of redemption than what happened in first century Palestine. God has more going on in redemption than what happened in first century Palestine. In other words, outside of that entire story of the scriptures, there is redemption in some way and someone. Raymond Panikin wrote of the unknown Christ of Hinduism. And he said, quote, It is through the sacrament of Hinduism, through the message of morality and a good life, it is through Hinduism that Christ saves There are just a couple of approaches that don't need the gospel. Obviously, flatly denying that there's no salvation in any other name and there's no salvation apart from the gospel. No gospel, no salvation. But let me bring it even more into the contemporary setting by mentioning a man named N.T. Wright, who is a theological teacher over in the UK. He's had a profound effect across uh, evangelicalism. He has written hundreds and hundreds of pages on the gospel, and it's all a confusing mass of ambiguity, contradiction, and obfuscation. It is academic sleight of hand. Recently, he wrote, The Day the Revolution Began, and he has become very popular in uh, compromising evangelical environments as well as in liberal ones. But he, he really is um, a fascinating guy for many young evangelical seminary students. So let me quote him. He rejects the biblical revelation of the gospel. He says, quote, we have paganized, one, we have paganized our understanding of salvation substituting the idea of God killing Jesus to satisfy his wrath for the genuinely biblical notion we are about to explore. So he says to believe that salvation comes by God substituting the death of Jesus to satisfy his wrath 
is a form of paganism. He despises the idea of justification by faith, totally rejects imputed righteousness, quote, that Christ died in the place of sinners, he writes, is closer to the pagan idea of an angry deity being pacified by a human death than it is to anything in either Israel's scriptures or the New Testament. He is crystal clear on what he rejects. He rejects imputation. He rejects substitutionary atonement. He rejects righteousness from God granted to a penitent sinner. And I'll give you some more of what he says because this is so common among students these days. He said, to worship God as one who justifies by imputed righteousness is nonsense. And I'll give you a couple of his sentences. Quote, if we use the language of the law court, it makes no sense whatsoever to say that the judge imputes, imparts, bequeaths, conveys, or otherwise transfers his righteousness to either the plaintiff or the defendant. Righteousness is not an object, a substance, or a gas which can be passed across the courtroom. This gives the impression of a legal transaction, a cold piece of business, almost a trick of thought performed by a God who is logical and correct, but hardly one we want to worship. Here's another quote. No one will be justified until he reaches heaven. End quote. So he is denying, essentially, the gospel. Substitutionary atonement. Here's another quote. I must stress again that the doctrine of justification by faith is not what Paul means by the gospel. The gospel is not an account of how people get saved. And I would remind him and you of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. How can someone deny substitutionary atonement, imputed righteousness, and flatly say that's not the gospel and find a hearing in any kind of Christianity. N.T. right is, frankly, N.T. wrong. <laughs> and the people who accept his high-sounding words are accepting words that are raised up against the knowledge of God. And people who buy into that are still in the same condition that Luther was in before he understood the gospel. They're void of the way to be right with God. If you reject the gospel, you can't be right with God. And it starts with a faulty understanding of God's holiness, but a faulty understanding of one's sin. N.T. Wright and those who follow him are comfortable and content with their works. And they believe those works. They should be content with them because they're believing in them as sufficient, coupled with the measure of grace to bring them salvation. Obviously, this is the hardest place to get a sinner to go, to the place where he sees the horror of his own sin. 
Jesus said in John 7, they hate me because I tell them they're sinners. But if you have a faulty understanding of your own sin, then you can easily concoct a faulty understanding of salvation. Well, in Martin Luther's case, he began by God's sovereign grace to study the book of Romans and Galatians, and as he did, he could see the light of the true way of salvation. And he discovered the just shall live by what? By faith. He learned that God gives the believer his own righteousness by imputation as a gift received through faith alone. He discovered that because that's what's in Romans and Galatians. The gospel broke on his soul with such force and peace and joy that it flooded him. He was forgiven. He was accepted. He was reconciled. He was converted. He was justified. He was adopted solely by grace. He wrote this, quote, Through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our own righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. He who trusts in Christ exists in Christ. He is one with Christ, the same as he, end quote. And then he quoted Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless what? I live, yet not I, but Christ lives where? In me. And of course, it was John Calvin who fully explained the richness of the gospel of God and the doctrine of justification. Now, all of that leads me to um, one passage of Scripture that uh, will help us to see this clearly, and it's in Romans 3. So you might want to turn in your Bible for the time that we have to a few minutes anyway to Romans chapter 3. We, we can pick it up in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight. There's a reason you can't be justified in the flesh. And it starts back in verse 10. There's none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, none who seeks God. And he goes through all of those Old Testament statements. You can't be made right with God through the law. That's the thesis of this really important portion. And it's such an airtight case that every mouth is stopped. Shut your mouth. You have no defense, no excuses. So what's the law for? Through the law, end of verse 20, comes the knowledge of sin. It can't save. It is designed to condemn Galatians 3.21 says, if a man had been given, rather, if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. On that verse, Galatians 3, Martin Luther wrote this. Here Paul is saying, no law of itself is able to give life. It only kills Therefore, such works as are done, even according to God's own law, do not justify us before God, but make us sinners. 
They do not pacify the wrath of God. They kindle it. They do not obtain righteousness, but hinder it. They do not give life, but kill and destroy. Therefore, in these words, Paul clearly teaches that the law in itself does not justify, but has the exact opposite effect. So not only could you not be saved by the law, it's impossible. It isn't even the purpose of the law. Another passage out of Galatians, Galatians 3.10, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. If you're trying to get there by works, you're under a curse. And of course, that's every religion apart from the true gospel. So here's how you have to see law and works. The law requires attitudes and behaviors opposite. Let me say that again. The law requires attitudes and behaviors opposite the desires of the heart. So that the natural person does not desire what the law demands. The law demands unnatural things. The law demands things that the heart of the unregenerate hates. Another way to look at it, the law demands attitudes and behaviors beyond the capability of the sinner. Not only does the sinner not want those things, he's not capable. And again, the law exalts absolute perfection, accepting nothing less all the time. The law doesn't accept consistency or a higher percentage of good than bad. It only accepts perfection. The law accepts no partial payment for violations. No good acts ever cancel out bad ones. No accumulated human goodness can minimize judgment. The law refuses to accept good intentions. It refuses to accept good effort as any consolation. It gives you no credit for that against guilt. The law provides no lightening of the burden of responsibility. The law does not decrease judgment. It is an unrelenting taskmaster it offers no mercy, no grace. The law shatters the soul of the noblest sinner like an iron hammer shatters glass. The law provides no relief for guilt, anxiety, fear, and dread. The law sentences the violator to the most extreme punishment forever without relief. The law provides no strength at all to help its victims. It offers no assistance. The law listens to no excuses. It listens to no repentance. It hears no prayers. It offers no grace. It provides no hope. It is so useless with regard to righteousness that Psalm 17:15 says, He that justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Exodus 23, verse 7, God says, I will not justify the wicked. That is the curse of the law. And still, the law is holy, just, and good. And the purpose of the law is to show us that we are sinners and to lead us where? To Christ. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All the law can do is increase our, sinful, our awareness of our sinfulness. And it drives us to Christ. Why to Christ? Well, that's Galatians 3. This magnificent statement by Paul. No one is justified by the law before God. That is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And then verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That is the definitive statement. 
Christ became a curse for us. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. No flesh is justified by the law, only by faith. And when you see that, the light of the glory of the gospel of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ becomes visible and you reject all efforts at human achievement. But the heart and soul of rejecting your human achievement is that you understand the absolute holiness of God and that's what he requires and you understand the wretched reality of your own sinfulness. And I think in this modern world with its easy believism and pray this prayer, say these few words, there's very little thrashing of a human soul in the agonies of the fact that they are sinful and that they are having to answer to an infinitely and perfectly holy God. Salvation is offered to people if they just say a few words, mumble under their breath. So that brings us to verse 21. Just to hit the points here, let's find out the positives. It's not by the law that righteousness comes. Verse 21, but now, since sinners have no righteousness and they cannot muster up any righteousness that would bring them to the level of perfection that is equal to the perfection of God, they cannot be justified by the law. So now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of man is useless. Filthy rags, manure. The righteousness of God is the only hope because God demands perfect righteousness. Horace, the Roman poet, was giving guidelines for um, writers of theatrical tragedies in his day. And I found this an interesting comment. He said this. This is with regard to Roman theater in ancient times. Do not bring a god onto the stage unless the problem requires a god to solve it. This problem requires a God to solve it. Luther said being right with God is a problem that requires God. And Isaiah 45, beautiful words, verse 8, drop down from the heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness and bring forth salvation. I, the Lord, have created it. God has to show up in the drama of human sin because the problem is one that requires God that divine eternal perfect righteousness did drop down from heaven manifested in the son of God both actively and passively but now it is manifested the old testament sacrificial system was focused on the punishment the law required but what about the obedience the law required There was no one who was fulfilling the law perfectly. So Christ came not only to be the sacrificial lamb, the perfect substitute, he came to be the perfect law keeper. And that's 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God put our sins on him and his righteousness on us. Another way to say it is, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life so that God could treat you as if you lived his. This righteousness is, says Paul, apart from the law. That is in the emphatic position in verse 21 of Romans 3. We have already seen what the law does. It defines sin. It increases sin. It promises and pronounces a curse on the sinner. It sentences all sinners to divine wrath. It is unable to provide spiritual life. But it 
does show us our sin. And I think that one of the things that needs to be belabored far more than it is is the preaching of Scripture that exposes people's sin. That's not popular because it's offensive. You, you, can, you can ignore that offense and you can fight off that offense all your way to hell. But anybody who cares about you would want to make sure you understood what an offense it was so you could come to the one who can rescue you. The idea that Jesus wants to fix your life, make you happy, take away your loneliness, give you purpose, attracts false converts. If you want a true convert, then press somebody to the depths of grief and fear with the weight of their own sin and the prospect of inevitable and everlasting punishment. Well, you say, is this a new message apart from the law? Is is that a new message, a New Testament message? No, keep reading. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That phrase refers to the Old Testament. This isn't anything new. This is the Old Testament. Go down to chapter 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what he is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That is an, ex- an exposition of Genesis fifteen six. This isn't anything new. Go back to... Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The gospel of grace is no new way of salvation. The righteousness of God is, apart from the law, witnessed by the Old Testament writers. And the righteousness of God, thirdly, we'll go down to verse 22, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Even into chapter 4, verse 5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom the Lord credits righteousness apart from works, quoting from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's basically justifying the ungodly, isn't it? If the Lord doesn't take your sin into account. We normally don't like that. We're not happy when that happens in Washington. We're not happy when people get away with crimes. We're not happy when the FBI doesn't uphold the law or the Justice Department doesn't uphold the law. We scream foul at the top of our voice because it goes against what is right and just. How can God justify the ungodly and be just by punishing his son in their place? That's the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is the means by which the sinner receives salvation. Martin Luther said, if this doctrine of sola fide stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. Guess what? The church collapsed. Listen to the Council of Trent. Council of Trent responded, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified, 
so that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of salvation, let him be damned. Damnation for salvation by grace alone. This easy courting of Roman Catholicism that seems so popular these days fails to understand that Roman Catholic theology is a doctrine of demons from hell. It's through faith and faith alone. And on that, the church stands or falls. Years ago, I read a book by Joseph Alain called An Alarm to the Unconverted. If you ever find one, do you do yourself a great service to read it. He wrote it in 1688. But here's, here's a quote. The sound convert takes the whole Christ and takes him for all intents and purposes, without exceptions, without limitations, without reserve. He is willing to have Christ upon any terms. He is willing to have the dominion of Christ as well as the deliverance of Christ. He says with Paul, Lord, what will you have me to do? Anything, Lord. He sends the blank to Christ to set down his own conditions, end quote. Why? Why are you willing to give up anything and everything? Because you're desperate. Because you understand what is being offered. Justification is apart from the law revealed in the Old Testament, received by faith. And then in verse 22, we add another component. It is without distinction, the end of the verse. There's no distinction. Acts 13 says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, our Lord, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could never be freed through the law of Moses. The point here is this is available to everyone who believes without distinction. Why? Because all have the same problem. What is the problem? Look at the next verse, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without exception, whoever you are, Unless your righteousness is equal to the very righteousness of God himself, you are destitute, you have fallen short. Whatever relative level of goodness on a human scale you might claim for yourself, you are far from the perfection of God. So yes, God will justify the ungodly. Those are the only ones he can justify. There aren't any others. So this gospel is apart from the law according to the Old Testament by faith without distinction. And Paul is so explicit with this. Um, what I'm trying to do with you is just kind of give you the, the categorical pieces of a full gospel presentation. Uh, number five in just going through this is that it is also a gift by His grace. Verse 24 being justified as a gift by His grace. Some translations add the word freely. It's a gift of grace. Galatians 2.21, it's for nothing. The word charis, Paul uses a hundred times the word grace. Justified, meaning declared righteous by God, being granted His righteousness as a gift of grace. That means it is not earned. It is a free gift. So this salvation is apart from the law, according to the Old Testament, by faith, without distinction, as a gift of grace. And how is it possible? Back to verse 24, through the redemption that was in Christ Jesus. What does redemption mean? Paying of a price. To ransom by the payment of a price. Somebody had to pay the price. Substitutionary death was pictured in all the whole sacrificial system throughout all of Israel's history. But only one lamb atoned for sin. 
it had to, it had to be that someone paid the price. And the price was paid so fully. Verse 25 says that God displayed Christ Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Propitiation means a satisfaction. The sacrifice was so perfect that God was propitiated. That's an old verb. It, it really means satisfied. God was satisfied. God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. It was sufficient. It was complete. It was enough. Those components of the gospel, and we could, we could say more than that, but our time is gone. Those are the things you need to understand and people need to understand as well. Salvation is apart from the law, according to the scripture, received by faith, provided for all, given freely by grace, and purchased by the redemption of Christ to the satisfaction of God. This is non-negotiable, by the way. Any other gospel brings a curse. Galatians, if anybody preaches another gospel, let him be what? Cursed. Let him be cursed. This is the only gospel, and I'll, I'll give you the final proof. Turn to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. This may be a surprise to use this passage, but you'll see the importance of it. Let's go to heaven. Let's find out what gospel is being honored in heaven, okay? So we went to heaven with John in chapter 5 and his vision. And in verse 6, John said, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's God on his throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, both saints and angels, fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So what are they celebrating in heaven? The redemption that was in whom? In Christ. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory, honor and glory and blessing. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. It doesn't... Heaven doesn't celebrate anything regarding salvation but the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't say to the one on the throne and the Lamb and a few really special people throughout history who were good enough. No. The only gospel celebrated in heaven is the real gospel. So you, you look there and you say, that settles it. It's defined. It's the gospel bound up in the sacrifice of Christ. So I think it's important for us, obviously, we, we need to handle the Word of God correctly on all fronts. But if we're going to be involved in 
the Great Commission. We're going to be involved in missions and evangelism. We better get this one right, wouldn't you think? And it's essential that you understand all the component elements of it. It doesn't mean you have to be as detailed as I was every time you talk to somebody about the gospel. But those are the components that are essential. And let me give you something that I know you know. Anything you change doesn't help because God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your strategy. He doesn't need your tactics. We're begotten again by the word of truth, right? Get the message correct, and the Spirit of God will redeem his own. All right, thank you, Father, for time for hearing from you. It's just what we do when we open your book. Thank you for these dear friends and encourage their hearts. And I pray you'll raise up from this place many faithful servants who will go across this world and proclaim the, the hard and yet glorious message of the gospel. Infuse uh, courage into them to be able to confront people in compassionate love even though they're directly talking about their sinfulness and the horrors of what awaits in the wrath of God. May may you do through the lives of these people here things that they could never imagine beyond what they could ask or think for your glory. Amen.